Hello, and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we talk all things justice over coffee with special guests. On this episode, I talk with the award-winning filmmaker and CEO of the Exodus Cry campaign group, Benjamin Nolo, or Benji for short. You may have seen some of his work already. He has a documentary out on Netflix at the moment called Liberated, The New Sexual Revolution, which we discuss a little in the podcast. He also directed and produced the human trafficking-themed documentary film Nefarious, Merchant of Souls, which is available to stream for free on YouTube if you haven't seen it yet. Do you remember in the last podcast when we spoke to Lexi, she referred to watching this film at high school and that moment actually being one of the ways she came to identify what happened to her in her younger life and led her to speaking out. Benji and his team started the Exodus Cry campaign group on the back of the nefarious documentary and that group has been taking on big porn recently. I don't know if you've seen the Trafficking Hub campaign on Instagram, which is calling out Pornhub and their owners MindGeek over the many crimes that take place on their websites, with revenge porn, trafficking victims, and countless videos of children being uploaded and broadcast every day. Benji has a new film coming out in September called Raised on Porn, which we also get onto in our chat. So let's get into it, shall we? Benji, welcome (laughs) to the podcast. I I, I embrace you as a friend. We we haven't yet had a chance to meet, but I'm I'm very aware of your work. I'm a big fan of what you've been doing, and I've been so excited to have you on the podcast. Now, these things, they always start the same way. So before we even begin to get into all the many topics I hope we can address, I've got to ask you. It's morning there in California, right? It's evening here. Tell me you're a coffee drinking man. Tell me that at least. I, I am. I start every day with a flat white. That's my go-to drink. Two Restrepo shots, some steamed milk. Mm, great way to get the day started. <laughs> Double shot. Good man. That is what I like to hear. You know, it wasn't until I started a coffee company that I've, I never knew how many people don't drink coffee, but that is well, man, you would get on. I knew we'd get on. That's a good start. So what I want to talk about is is your your documentary experience or the experience of making the documentaries you have nefarious was when I was first came across you and the Exodus Cry movement and I was just blown away I thought it was a masterful piece of documentary Mm. making I want to I want to I want to dive into all of those things but um, I I also want to just get to know you a little bit and find out who's the man I'm I'm talking to over today talk to me about life as as a young guy in in i know you're in california did you grow up there what was what was life like for you before this this journey started yeah grew up in uh southern california and it's you know we've got the mountains we've got the beach it was a great environment to grow up in i was the youngest of four kids bit sheltered growing up um the issue that we're going to talk about today was first introduced to me through a film called the accused that I saw when I was 11 years old. And, and that movie depicted the gang rape of, of a woman named Cheryl Arroyo. And, uh, and that was really my first awakening to the knowledge of the presence of evil in the world. And so 
I feel like, you know, even growing up here in this idyllic area, I wasn't fully sheltered from the realities that you and I are now addressing in the world. But that was just a seed that was deposited in my heart that wouldn't come into full manifestation or fruition until much, much later. Um, growing up, I was always uh, outdoors, surfing, fishing, playing hockey. I, uh, I loved, you know, I have a thirst for life and a love for life and a, and a love for humanity. Um, was very drawn to the arts and filmmaking uh, early on. And, um, and, and then sort of like went in my early 20s, um, through my 20s, kind of went on a spiritual journey. I was really asking bigger questions about life and, you know, who I am in this world and what are the things that I want to get out of this life and, um, and who is God. And, you know, I, I was just asking big life questions. And, and during that season, um, uh, I discovered the issue of human trafficking. And, um, and so, you know, we can, I guess, get into that at some point, but that, that was my burning bush, you know, experience that really helped cement my focus and calling and direction for life. It's interesting that you mentioned that, that film, The Accused. I don't, I don't know if I've seen it, but it, it's time and time again, when I talk to people that have committed a part of their life to fighting injustice, it began having watched a film, be it Taken or Whistleblower or, mm -hmm. or something. I, I really believe in the power of media, in the power of storytelling, because it has this nature to invade people and reach them in the safety of their own homes, but also to motivate them into action. It's, it's interesting that that's the case for you in, in, in this instance. So with the filmmaking, was it did you go at it from an approach of, I'm going to expose injustice, I'm going to take a camera and I'm going to go out and such? Or was it, I love filmmaking. Hey, I wonder if I can do something on, about these things that I'm passionate about. Which, which way around was it? Sure. Yeah, when I, when I first discovered that this issue was even happening, I began to just try to research everything available online or whatever books, documentaries were available and there was very little awareness about human trafficking back during this time in 2007 mm. and um and so i i started to feel like man we really need to help tell the story of what's going on related to this issue and um it was like pulling a a, a bit of yarn you know and i didn't really know what i was signing up for what i was getting myself into but I felt like the story needed to be told in a way that could help connect people to the realities of, of what was going on. So that was the point at which I really just, you know, felt compelled to marry these two passions, a passion for filmmaking with a passion for, you know, addressing this injustice of human trafficking and mm. um, fighting for the lives of those who had been trafficked. And, um, and so that, that decision compelled me to begin this journey um, we did, we arranged a filming trip to Southeast Asia that was six weeks long. And I imagined that this would constitute the entirety of our filming. And we would come back and edit that and put this documentary out. But um, while I was on that trip, I, I was just 
the kind of like the whole world opened up to me in a way that I hadn't previously seen it. And I made a decision. Were you going there to shoot something on human trafficking? Is that yeah, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so, I I think it was at that point that I just kind of decided, like, I don't know where this story is going to take us or how long it's going to take to document, but I'm I'm signing up to go on that journey. And uh, we ended up traveling to um, 19 countries and 42 cities on four continents over the course of about four years to complete uh, Nefarious. And it's it's a global snapshot of sex trafficking. So for anybody that's watching this or listening to this, uh, I feel like Nefarious is, is still a really great resource for people to introduce them to the issue. And you can kind of see how this issue um, operates in different parts of the world and then the connecting factors, you know, source countries, destination countries, underlying factors, with also a very hopeful, redemptive um, solution at the end, uh, epilogue. And um, so I think people, there was some, something that guided me in the creative process of, of making Nefarious was this quote that I had once heard, said there are two things that pierce the human heart, tragedy and beauty. And so we felt like, you know, Nefarious really, captures the palpable tragedy of human trafficking, but also offers the, the, a really palpable sense of hope at the end. And, um, and so, yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, anyone watching this can access it on our YouTube channel, Exodus Cry YouTube. And um, still to this day, we get so much traction with that film. So very encouraged to see how it has helped awaken people to this issue and open up doors for us to um, raise awareness, to change laws um, and inspire others to start organizations and, and get involved in the fight. That is remarkable. Four years to make. And what did you say? I wrote it down. Was it 19 different countries? Yeah. I mean, it is a really, it's, it's really comprehensive look at the issue. And I remember when I first came across it, like, I've got to be honest with you, Benji, I was like, I was so ready not to like it. <laughs> what does that say about me and my character? But I was so ready not to like it, right? To sit at it and pick holes in it. I think because I, I've seen the subject done yeah. poorly so mm -hmm. many times, a really super visual version. I think I have a, a, an issue with, um, you know, that rescue narrative and that mm -hmm. even as a former investigator like it, it's mm -hmm. not all about the rescue and and, and and i think that can be portrayed inaccurately and unhelpfully and so so i was really i was going what's this going to be what's this going to be yeah, yeah, yeah. like half an hour in i'm like this is solid like you you did an you did an excellent job mate you've got a nice so i've seen i've seen the uh what's it um liberated as well on on netflix and you've got a nice filmmaking style i did film i mean this is going back but okay. when i was at college so i hated my high school so when i got to college now in in the uk college is like your last two years of high school right so we stopped going to high school at 16 okay. and when our college is 17 and 18 years old so i was like i hate school i'm gonna do all subjects that have nothing to do with sort of traditional academia and one of them was film studies right <laughs> i loved it this is amazing i get to come to school and watch films all day and That's i remember awesome. studying documentary makers and and nick broomfield and uh, like yeah, this yeah, yeah. tupac and and i yeah. and and the way he was like one of the first to sort of introduce himself 
into the documentary to step behind from in front of the camera and and sort right. of inv- and I thought yeah you kind you kind of do that in a in a in a passive way I don't know if you yeah. uh, have any inspirations in documentary film obviously Britain has got some fantastic ones but like I've watched Michael Moore but I don't know who who are your sort of go-to guys for for being inspired by in in, in that field uh, I I don't know it's constantly changing and evolving I mean I I, I'm, I'm inspired by different things. So I really was inspired by the, the story of war photographer and just the creative elements of that film. I was inspired by the activism of the cove um, and really how to use documentary to um, address an important social justice issue. Um, I, I've been inspired recently by a film called uh, the vanishing at the Cecil Motel and just the emphasis on really cinematic reenactments. So I, I, I and of course, you know, um, Errol Morris, I mean, uh, there's his, he was, you know, really the one who pioneered uh, reenactment, cinematic, highly cinematic reenactments in, in documentary. So I, I'm inspired by, I, I love the genre. I think the genre is really, really important. It is the small voice of conscience in our world. Um, still left in our world. And I know for me, documentaries have really helped shape my understanding of the world um, on really any issue. And, um, and so I, I have a high value for the genre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we try to treat it with that level of reverence and respect. And really, I don't, I, I'm, I'm governed, I feel like I'm driven more by, um, more by, ethics and values per se than I am um, a certain style. Mm -hmm. I think the style can adapt itself to whatever the story is. So with Nefarious, we felt like I could be a helpful guide for a viewer to kind of sort of like vicariously go on this journey with where I'm not overtaking the story, but I'm somebody to connect to as we're like, seeing these different things from different parts of the world. Um, But in some of the newest films that we're getting ready to release, I'm not in them at all. Um, And, and the, and the style is completely different. So really it's, it's an issue of just with each story that we take on, what is the appropriate style? What is the best way to tell this story? Um, So we, I, there's a, a quote from Michelangelo. He said, um, I see the angel in the marble and then I carve it out. And, and I think that's a great way to describe the creative process, you know, is like you have a, a sort of like a, a, a deeper vision um, of and, and almost like a gut feeling of like what you're trying to accomplish. But the creative process is, is, is bringing that to life. Mm. And that process for us takes years. Um, you know, it's not, it's not with narrative films. It, a lot of it boils down to how quickly can you write a screenplay? Because once that's done, then lining up everything else is pretty straightforward. Even the edit is, you know, relatively straightforward because you're, you're basing, you know, you have a certain amount of shots and, and a certain amount of lines that are given with documentary. It's, it's a completely different process. And, and I, I respect both genres, uh, but documentary is much more involved from the standpoint of, of, of shaping the clay. You're going out, you're, you're gathering tons of information. You're pulling that information in 
And then it, it can take years to craft and to edit that into a cohesive, coherent story. Mm. And so I'll start with, you know, one idea of what we want to accomplish. And then where we end up could be somewhere, you know, sort of like in the ballpark, but like much, much different than I originally um, imagined. And um, that's been the case with everything that I've done. Um, and we're, we're really excited about some of the new projects that we have coming out. So we did Nefarious and then we did Liberated, um, which is more about the kind of the cultural underpinnings. And then um, now we're about to release a documentary here um, in July, August called Raised on Porn. That's about porn's impact on consumers. So really like what's porn's role in this whole larger issue. And um, we feel like it's a, a very compelling film that's relevant to just about everybody out there today because we've all been exposed to pornography, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and some of us from a very young age. And so this film aims to address that audience, that demographic of people who have been exposed to pornography to really help us quantify the impact of that. So we're kicking off a campaign called uh, Protect Kids Not Porn. And this film raised on porn will be a central aspect of that. Really hoping to kind of move the needle on porn's impact on our world. So let's get into that. Before we do, I want to want to drag you back to the first film, and mm -hmm. uh, you, you go to you go to Holland, and like most of the audience to this podcast are British. I think seventy percent. The rest of it is all over the world. Fantastically international, and a good a good chunk over there in the US. But most a lot of people over here in the UK will, will have made that trip across the water. I'm actually in in Norwich. It's literally like yeah. You're taxiing to take off. We're now touching down and you're in Amsterdam. It's literally like a 15 minute in the air flight. Oh, wow. the and I think most of us at some point have probably been there and walked along the alleys with the red lights and uh, looked in the, the shop windows with young women standing there and, and, and in some cases waving and beckoning you in and people giggling and taking pictures. And the, certainly my, my experience of it the first time I went, I don't know how old I was. It wasn't that long ago, maybe mid 20s. I don't know. It, it, it really disturbed me. And as a cop at the time, I'd seen some pretty chilling things, uh, but it really disturbed me, the commercial nature of it, the, the exposure of it. And uh, we had Esther Stein, who's an amazing woman, and she, she's, she's, well, she's South African, she lives in Holland, and she's written some strong pieces about the sex industry, particularly how how poor the consequences of the legalization of sex in, in Amsterdam, well, in Holland, and, and the, the, the malicious, well, the pernicious uh, impact of, of that, and how actually it's not empowering. All it's done is it's left the door open for, for organized criminal gangs to have carte blanche and trafficking human beings. And I thought you covered that, that well. And you mentioned about, you know, I start a documentary and then we see where it goes. Like, I wonder whether when you started Nefarious in Cambodia and found yourself in Eastern Europe, or at least in Amsterdam, <laughs> it's yeah. okay, this is like, what are we doing here? What, so what, yeah. was, what was that learning experience? What took you from child sex trafficking in Cambodia over to commercial legal prostitution in civilized, developed society? It was, it was the idea that when we got into this, that trafficking looks this certain way. Mm. somebody gets abducted and then mm. they're forced into prostitution and then that's it. And um, when we went to Southeast Asia, we learned that um, it, it's much more of a cultural phenomenon in Southeast Asia. 
and um, where this is part of their GDP and girls from a young age are um, conditioned into believing that part of their value as a human being is what they can what they can earn in in a sex market and um this so there we, what we discovered in southeast asia in and even in within southeast asia the story is different from country to country with some overlapping realities but like in thailand for example where you know girls growing up in the hill tribe areas um, are not given thai citizenship are driven by their families into the cities looking for work and it's very well understood that the the young girls in in the family bear the the responsibility for helping to support the family while the while the boys are there's a higher value placed on them like going to school and things like that so girls will be these vulnerable young girls will be driven down into these cities and then preyed upon by all the you know massage parlors girly bars um, karaoke bars and turned out for sex and so there was this whole cultural phenomenon where we realized, okay, it's not just somebody being abducted. There are other underlying push and pull factors that are sending large demographics of vulnerable young girls into the sex industry. And then there's the demand side of that equation where Southeast Asia has become a, a fixture for pedophiles around the world. So they are you know, drawn to these places from Japan, from Germany, from the UK, from America, from men around the world congregate to these places looking for that. And so there's this whole supply and demand reality. Well, as we began to discover all of this going on in, um, in Thailand and Southeast Asia, we were, uh, surprised to run into two girls who were from Russia oh, wow. and um, and and these girls were flirting and bantering and, and clearly you know in the sex industry and and then we asked them this question how did you guys get here <laughs> like and you know like we're in Thailand like why is there a couple of Russian girls here right. and and uh, instantly their faces went sober one of them got tears in their eyes her eyes and they just said we can't talk about that and um and so we inquired with a organization that was working on the ground there and so we don't even reach out to the russian girls because their situation is so hopeless they're they're under the, the the control of organized crime in a very intense way and so then we started to realize like okay there's this is there's an interconnectivity global inactivity to this issue as a result of globalism and we just began to inquire like what is happening in russia and then how is what's happening in russia and eastern europe affecting what's going on in western europe and where did you know so we started to try to piece together different realities that were happening in trafficking in different parts of the world and um and ultimately that that led us to Amsterdam, which is more of a destination country. Amsterdam sort of put up, put out the welcome mat for people to come there and to buy women for sex. Amsterdam has one of the most famous red light districts in the world. And 
So by virtue of that, it has become a vortex for the most vulnerable demographics of people around the world um, who are marginalized and, um, and, and vulnerable for any, any number of reasons. But then, you know, third party facilitators like pimps and traffickers will bring these poor, impoverished, marginalized, abused, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, demographics of people to Amsterdam, put them up in apartment houses, rent out a window, and then turn them out in these windows to, again, men coming in from America or the UK or Germany or Japan or other parts of Europe. So it's a, it's a complex issue. And it took us a long time of really doing a deep dive into it to begin to pull it apart and try to present in a way that would be coherent for an audience to, to really turn on some lights to understand, okay, this is what's going on. This is why it's going on. And this is what we can do about it. Yeah, you did a terrific job of it. And there's a, there's a, a growing tide. I know it's in the US as well, because I was on a, on a call a camp run by a campaign group, good one. Uh, I just didn't happen to really agree with the, the the sway of it about sex work. And the answer to sex trafficking is to decriminalize sex work internationally. That's the answer, right? So we don't want to even legalize in, in Holland, in Germany, in parts of the world where there's a degree of state involvement, there's a degree of licensing of regulation. No, we don't want that. We want self-regulation, self-control. We can protect ourselves, just leave us alone. We want mm. to pay tax. We want, it's going to be empowering. I want to be treated like a human being. Now, I can understand that criminalizing sex workers makes them increasingly vulnerable. It makes them less likely to go forward to the police, less likely to, to stretch out a hand and say help. So I, I, I'm not, I don't think that's a, an effective strategy. My concern about this, this growing movement that says the decrim is the answer. We've got the likes of Amnesty International behind this and some mm -hmm. significant players in the human rights movement have said that no, this is right for me benji and I, I, you're very welcome to disagree for me that's madness because mm -hmm. it, the people you've described are the people from my experience of investigating sex trafficking that that populate the sex industry are not university educated yes there will be but that is not representative of sex workers worldwide uh, full mm -hmm. that, that 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 are self-affirmed confident and and demand above all things to be recognized and given respect because of what lifestyle they've chosen that that is a minority of cases in the most part it is people of extreme vulnerabilities being exploited mm -hmm. by third parties and uh, so anyway i'm just i'm probably just exercising my own thoughts greedily there on a podcast where i'm interviewing you um, but i just I, I have heard you spoke speak on it you spoke extremely powerfully on it in an address to the un i just I just, I would wanted to know your views. Yeah, I mean, as an abolitionist, I don't even, I, I reject the term sex work altogether because of what it implies. In my view, sex and desire are inextricably linked. And when you have sex without desire, that results in exploitation, regardless of somebody's getting paid for it. The entire basis of prostitution, sex, happens on the basis of a lack of desire. One person wants the sex, one person doesn't, therefore payment takes place. So the entire premise of prostitution is a premise of exploitation. It is one person wants the sex, one person doesn't, therefore payment takes place. But that doesn't solve the fact that even though that payment is taking place, the person is going to experience that sex as a form of sexual violation. 
and so they have to comp they have to dissociate and all go through all kinds of mental gymnastics in order to survive the experience of prostitution. And so I think that's to me like just that basic fundamental premise is a really important piece. The other thing is that prostitution is a system of gender inequality. When you think about the people in prostitution, we're talking about 98 to 99% men who are the buyers and 98 to 99% women who are the ones being bought. So it is, prostitution is a construct of male demand. Um, and it is one of the last strongholds of gender inequality left in our world. Um, and so when I think about, as an abolitionist, when I think about trafficking and prostitution, I really try to develop a systems level analysis to understand what is this and then what is the best way for us to address it. So I view prostitution as a system of violence, exploitation, and gender inequality. And as a result of that, I want to eradicate it. Um, I think that the abolition or Nordic model of legislation has proven to be the most effective means to do that. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is this law that was first developed by Sweden, which I refer to as the abolition model of legislation. Some people refer to it as the, as the Nordic model. Um, this legislation, first of all, it creates criminal culpability for the men who are purchasing people in, in the sex industry. Um, and so when you think about at the very, at the very root level, this of, of human trafficking and the larger commercial sex industry, at a very root level comes from the, the demand on the part of men for illicit sex. If men stopped buying women and children for sex, the entire commercial sex industry would implode overnight. So the commercial sex industry necessitates demand, it markets demand, it wants to increase demand. And we see this in areas where prostitution has been legalized, decriminalized, endorsed, places like Amsterdam, places like Germany, just changing the landscape of these countries in terms of how men understand and relate to women sexually. And um, so what Sweden said is we're going to criminalize the purchase of sex, create criminal culpability for the people who are fueling the demand, um, who are the demand. Um, but then the other thing that they said, and the other reason why this, this law has been so effective is that it addresses the vulnerability of people who are being drawn into the sex industry. And rather than giving them a, a, you know, a criminal label and adding to the burden of what is already a difficult life circumstance for them, the, this model of legislation offers programs and services to those vulnerable people. And so Sweden is, has really been a, a, a success story in the fight against trafficking and they have eradicated trafficking in their country. The, even the chief of police in Sweden speaks very highly of this law and is one of the, the, the greatest advocates of it because he's seen the effectiveness of it. And so um, in our view, this law is really important and a critical part of getting to the deeper root issues for why 
commercial sex, the commercial sex industry and all the exploitation and trafficking that goes with it has become so prominent in our world today. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know how I feel about the Nordic model, if I'm honest. I, I, if I had to pick one, it, I probably lean that way uh, against the other options. But I can understand, having spoken to sex workers, why they would say, well, hang about, you, you criminalize the Toms, you're still making me vulnerable. I can understand sex workers that have said, I'm never going to stop selling myself. You know, this is my only option due to my immigration status, due to my education, due to whatever my psychological heart, whatever's happened, whatever reason, whatever motivation, that, that they still consider that their only source of survival. And, but, and, and, and there's a question over how realistic is that aim of, of reducing demand? Can we ever sufficiently target that, whether it's through legislation or through cultural education or whatever? But I think what's, what I agree with the premise of the Nordic model is that it's about, it's not, it's, it's not about necessarily the, 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 who's, who's getting nicked tonight, right? Who's getting arrested? It's about how do we get people from a position of vulnerability that causes them to engage in the sex industry as their option? How do we get them out? Right? What mm -hmm. do you need? How can we support you and give you an alternative lifestyle, give you hope, give you something beyond this? And, and that I am, am a complete supporter of. I, I just think it's a, there is no panacea to, to the exploitation of human beings. Of course, we've got, to, we've got to look for something. We've got to look for hope. We've got to have hope. Um, and we've got to strive for that. But it's, it's, a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult, issue i find the issue difficult but i know what i'm not for mm -hmm. and that's for turning the lights off and saying well, we're all fine here just leave us alone which i think is it's only going to lead uh, to the increase in, in vulnerability to the increase in trafficking and it it concerns me now i don't know if you mind me introducing this into our conversation in regards to your your faith i know you're you're a christian man and and it's the Christian element of what you're doing in, in pursuing sex trafficking in pursuing injustice and holding a torch and lighting it up and saying, this is what's going on out there and doing a fantastic job of you included that in the nefarious documentary. That is the hope, right? Mm -hmm. And, but some people will say, well, I'm not a believer. Like where do I fit in here? You know, if I don't believe in, in, in God or in Jesus or Christian faith or any faith or whatsoever, like, where's my hope in this subject? I wonder if you could speak to that at all. My personal inspiration comes from my faith in Christ um, because I see modeled in Jesus a life of uh, a life of compassion and his life was was characterized by compassion and love. And so to me, like, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan really summarizes and embodies um, the, the, the life of Jesus and um, and his approach to addressing vulnerability in our world. And, um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people maybe interpret their faith through um, this idea of, of, of various belief systems uh, against each other. It's more, more of an intellectual dogma. Thing. Yeah. I, I see, I see the story of the Good Samaritan and, and what Jesus embodied is more about a way of being in the world in which we are compassionate towards those around us that means what so basically the story of the good samaritan kind of it it begs the question of what is your response to vulnerability um the vulnerability that that is around you and so for me that is that is a, a huge inspiration for how i want to live my life obviously jesus sets a very high standard that none of us are ever going to achieve where we're weak broken human beings but he provides a a model for how to be in the world 
that can, um, you know, be a source of life and healing and, and help and blessing to others. And, and that's what I want for my life. So um, and when it comes to our uh, work and working with other people, we, you know, everybody has a seat at the table when it comes to addressing this issue. We don't try to qualify people in or out based on what they believe or don't believe. We're looking at like, where, where do we agree? Um, and, and how can we, you know, set aside maybe some of our, our differences in order to accomplish this goal of um, ending the commercial sexual exploitation of women and children throughout our world. So that's really where we stand on it. You know, uh, it, even in Nefarious, it wasn't something that we imposed on the film. It was us following the story of people who, whose journey brought them to a place of having these powerful supernatural experiences that ended up ultimately transforming and changing their lives and pulling them out of this pit of exploitation. And so we've seen the hand of God at work in some of the most, you know, darkest, tragic um, situations uh, in the world. And, um, and that, that has massively increased our faith mm. just to see how uh, some of these individuals whose lives seem so hopeless were miraculously transformed. I, I find it really interesting because I, I know you're sure you have far more than I have, but I've received a small amount of criticism <laughs> for some of my views on these subjects. And, um, and that's, that's good. That's okay. I've got no issue with that. I'm sure you've had plenty as well, but I, I was watching a documentary by Louis Theroux the other day. Have you heard of Louis Theroux? Yeah. yeah. I love Louis Theroux. Like yeah, I know I love, he's, a, I love his movies. He's great. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah. He, he's got a certain way about him, hasn't he? He sort of yeah. approaches everyone, sort of pretending at least to be a bit, bit right. of a dunce. But he's, I mean, he's a really... He's got that dry sense of humor where he's trolling Super people, dry. but they don't really know they're being trolled. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, he, he makes me laugh. And um, he's, got, he's started releasing a podcast during lockdown. It gives you a little bit more of an idea of his personality, you know, how he, he plays dumb in order to get, to extract what he wants from the subjects of his documentaries. But he does one, I don't know how long ago now, probably five years old at least, on sex work in a state of America, in Chicago somewhere. And it, so, so the arguments that say, well, you're a Christian, your views are fundamentalist, they're, 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 they're agendized, they come from this, but actually, this is a, a thoroughly non-spiritual, in my opinion, issue when it comes to the fact that he's not coming at it with an agenda as a Christian who wants to, to see people converted as an, in, in so any sort of evangelical nature whatsoever. He's just coming with a, a crew, right? To expose what, what's, what does it look like? What are, these, what are the lives like of the people that are yeah. working? Whether they believe it or not that, that they're, work, they're empowered, they choose to do it. It doesn't take a huge amount of time to understand that their, their lives are broken and in, in, in some way and, and it, it's quite it's quite clear to the viewer and that's not from a religious point of view from a judgmental point of view I mean your point about Jesus as a role model what I love about it without diving too much into the religious aspect is a man that doesn't display any examples of being a, a self-righteous a judgmental character right he throws the first stone you know it's like yeah. that's the jesus that i read about and and connect with yeah. and uh, and it's addressing these issues where you are taking that element of your faith and and, and rather than 
unfortunately sometimes i think it's projected upon you that if you are a person of faith that you're coming from a pious legalistic puritanical self-righteous point of view it's like how do you and this i'm talking to myself here benji there's more than anyone how do you not come at it from that angle right how do you come of it with love and not with judgment and with a genuine support to protect the most vulnerable i don't know if that's even a question I, but i think that's a challenge isn't it i think fundamentally it, it it's starts with the issue of the cosmological question of our existence you know here we go and, here we go this sounds good and so the story of christianity is that a loving benevolent father um, was motivated out of his own essence and nature and communal nature the, the trinity the father the son the holy spirit that out of out of this communal being came this this um design and this creation um for life and the cosmos and um and for you and i and that kind of personal story um that 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 gives me inherent value and dignity that i was actually created out of a loving benevolent being with a purpose for my life um is really anchors me in in my worldview and um so that's first and foremost but the 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 narrative continues that that our creation humanity um turned their back on god and and rejected and renounced god's design and, and plan and purpose for humanity but but god didn't then turn his back on humanity he made a way of reconciliation and redemption and so to me, the story of the gospel is God pursuing us in love, um, in our brokenness to reconcile us into relationship with himself. And um, so I think fundamentally for me, you know, that that story of Christianity is so powerful. It's it's my story. I believe it's all of our story. We all, again, are are broken in many ways. And so anyone who comes away from Christianity with self-righteous judgmental attitude you have to wonder what else is going on there because certainly they've lost touch with the fact that like it's not like y'all are broken i'm broken mm. i needed a savior like i'm a mess without god in my life and without you know a, a faith that inspires me and a model to to pursue a life of love and compassion and um so yeah i mean that's I, there's a passage in, in this book of James. He said, pure and undefiled religion is ministry to orphans and widows in their trouble. And what he was talking about when he says orphans and widows, he's talking about vulnerable demographics of people. So this is a theme that we see throughout the entire scripture is where the heart, like in, in, in Proverbs 2, where it says that God uh, guards the paths of justice. It's the picture of a compassionate God who's looking down at humanity. His heart is filled with love and compassion, but he invites us to partner with him in bringing hope and salvation and deliverance and protection and compassion and, and healing to those who are in trouble, to those vulnerable demographics of people. So Isaiah chapter one deals directly with what you're talking about because the, the nation had become very religious Israel had become a very religious nation 
but their heart was disconnected from the plight of the vulnerable. And so God rebukes them. And he says, even all your hyper-religious activity, even your worship services are an abhorrence to me because you are neglecting the plight of the orphan and the widow. So in calling them to repentance, he says, now do this, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, help the orphan and the widow. And so to me, like that's, that's, that is the, uh, the heart, the essence, the centerpiece of Christianity that's embodied in the life of Jesus. That's what I'm drawn to. But self-righteousness isn't just a problem that some Christians deal with. It's a problem that everybody in our world deals with. I mean, look what's going on in the cancel culture right now. It's a completely punitive justice environment in which nobody is addressed for their mistakes on the basis of how can we reform or help this person, but on the basis of let's extinguish you from society for forever. So tell me that's not self-righteous. I mean, at some level, you have to assert yourself as like, I am perfect. You have done wrong. And now I will sit as your judge, jury, and executioner to ensure that you never have a voice or place in society again. So I would argue that the most self-righteous people in our world today um, are coming out of the, this toxic cancel culture environment. <laughs> and it's not to say that there aren't some Christians that are self-righteous, but it's a problem, self-righteousness is a problem that affects humanity in every society around the world. So as humans, we struggle with that. Some Christians, you know, we find reason to struggle with it because we think, well, we're, we're, we're right. We're justified. You know, we're saved, whatever it is. But that's the story of the gospel is we're all equal at the foot of the cross. We all are in need of the grace, mercy, forgiveness of God. And then when we receive that to step out and live out that same love, grace, compassion, and mercy that you showed us. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. People, you know, slam me for my faith. It come up with all kinds of things. I, if any of these people who, you know, have done these hit pieces, just, just sit down with us. Like it, it, the problem is so much is happening online. And again, it's the cancel culture, but um, honestly at the end, I, I've become, I'll just say this last thing on this. I know I've been going on. I, I, I've become shocked over the past year, all these hit pieces. And it's really a lot of them guilt by association or a lot of, baggage that doesn't really belong to me that that is projected onto me because of being a christian or whatever i i that was the furthest thing from my mind when i got into this i thought i'm i'm literally trying to just help people who are being trafficked and help reform people who are part of the the problem by fueling the demand you know i didn't imagine myself to be in the crosshairs of cancel culture and you know all this stuff so it's been a wild journey but look at Wilberforce. I mean, you know, fighting slavery, that system of oppression during his time was not popular. And he was, you know, attempt, they attempted to cancel him too. So no, you've, you've spoken really well on it and it is a hot topic. And, you know, there, it's a, there's a, there's a wider thing, right. About colonialism and white savior and, and, and all sorts of issues that have, I don't know. The closer I get to, to 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 talking about talking with people doing their best to use their lives to help, um, there's a critic standing in the corner somewhere saying, "You're exercising, you know, this disempowering colonial rhetoric, and you're, you know." And I think this is such a shame because what is the response to now? I'm not saying there's no value in that argument. Full stop. I am confident there's been lots of mistakes made in the way we portray. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, we've rescued this person. They're sort, you know, their lives 
figured out no it's not it's just the star you know but uh, and painting ourselves as these heroes crashing through doors and this is you know you need a white guy to, to parachute in and sort out the Af africa you know i can understand how damaging and unhelpful and inaccurate those that that narrative is and how widespread it's been used so there's value there i i, I do not disregard that but mm -hmm. i've also seen an, 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 a, such an aggressive uh, attack on people like yourself benji who are committed to seeing justice done and and, and they're bit, it's, they've had this this such a negative i don't know uh this sort of muck thrown at you and what's the best that could happen you just to pull out oh i'm not going to do it anymore then i'll just go back to living my own life right i'm the center of it and i'll just serve myself i'm going to stop trying to help around the world you're right you're right it's not for me to do you know and and that's what is that what they want you know yeah. and, and and that's my concern about this this and uh, we love to categorize right so if you and i'm all, i'm conscious of it just saying these things now that i don't want to be thrown in with a bunch of nutty fundamentalist right-wing conservative loons like I, I don't want to sit over there but then also i don't want to get flung over here at the other opposite side of the scale it's a it's a difficult world to navigate and the more you speak up the more i think there's a degree of acceptance and you seem more uh, at peace with it perhaps than i am but just like you know what i'm doing my best and if yeah. that's how you want to describe me, like, so be it. But I'm, I'm doing my best. And as long as I, I, I can honestly know that. Well, I think the world has just become so polarized now. Mm. And there's so much pressure on identifying or belonging in a certain group. And the, the, the struggle and the challenge of today is not to become polarized, is to man, maintain critical thinking, to mon maintain objectivity, and to be able to stay true to your core values and wherever you find those to affirm those you know so I, I find some of my core values being represented and embodied on the left and i find some of them being embodied on the right and i find some of the things that i find abhorrent being represented and embodied on the left and, and on the right for example slander um you know i i i don't i don't like the spirit of slander i think it has a deteriorative effect on um relationships on our humanity on our society but people on the right and the left have just you know fully signed up for unbridled slander one towards the other some doing it in the name of of being righteous conservative christians some doing it in the name of being you know uh righteous social justice uh warriors you know and but for me i'm like i it's poison so uh so i i don't believe in our culture in that sense i think our culture is is bankrupt i think our culture is sick so when the culture is like trying to get me say something about me or conform me to something i'm just like i don't i have a very low view of our culture from that standpoint of i believe our culture is sick i believe our culture needs help and um so i'm not certainly not going to fall under the persuasion to polarize into one group or, or, or mm. another mm. i have to live true to myself and remain a critical thinker and objective about the core values that motivate me to really want to help impact the world for good mm. and um so yeah it's a vision of the world it's a vision of society it's a vision of 
you know, with this issue of human sexuality at, at a core and a mm -hmm. fundamental level, mm -hmm. it's like, just even on that level, does, does, does sexuality have value? Mm -hmm. Does it like, what value does it hold? Is it, is it meaningless? If it's meaningless, then why is adultery a thing? Why is child abuse a thing? So, so inherently it does have some value, mystery, potency, purpose behind it. We know if you introduce children to that issue too, too soon, it's damaging. That's the, you know, the research, objective research by um, therapists and researchers have, have, have shown that this can be damaging. So, so there's an order, there's a maturity, right? To that issue. So, so we know there, there's something unique about sexuality in our world that deserves reverence, that deserves respect, right? You, you don't take your kid out at five years old and take them to a brothel, mm -hmm. right? That would be damaging to that child. So, so what is it about, about this, you know? And then can, you know, can th this issue of sexuality be, be properly respected and reverenced within the context of the commercial sex industry? So that's a question, you know, for us as a society, like I, don't want to live in a world where women are for sale in windows. Um, that transactional approach to using women like slot machines has proven to be damaging. Just the international research that has been done for decades, the voice and testimony of survivors for decades have shown us this is damaging. So, so that's not the world I want to live in. And when people are advocating for that world on all these other me-centered arguments, I just think at some level, you know, sorry, I, I keep going on and I'll just say this last thing. At, at a very core level, the idea of society is that we're better in this together than we are alone. If you want to take a me-centered approach to society and you can give up on the idea of society, just say, I'm going to go live out in a cave somewhere by myself. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we talk, start talking about we, you have to take the me out of it because <laughs> the whole argument is like, well, this clearly is not something good for our society. It's not something good for our world, but I need to make money today. It's like, wait a minute, stop, stop. Let's figure out a way to do this. And that's, again, what I like about the Swedish Nordic abolition model is the recognition that some people are going to be marginalized and vulnerable in our world. So let's figure out a way to support them that doesn't require them being ex exploited. It's funny because I think certainly over the last few years, certainly during the Trump presidency, during Brexit, during sort of different political controversies of, of recent years, all of us at one stage have gone, oh, I wish I had Richard Branson's money, right? I'm going to go buy an island, right. <laughs> have a yacht or whatever, and do that. You know, I can't exist in this place. I'm going to have to step out. And of course, that's not the right answer, right? We've got to lean in. We got to get involved, but there's a. I think every. I certainly have been guilty of that. I wonder if there's a scrap piece of land somewhere I can purchase and start my own world where it's equal. And of course, we've done that, right? History's proven we do that each time, right? This is we're going to get it right this time, and and we go out and uh, I mean, you know, a bit Orwellian, a bit Animal Farm, but we we fit into these these systems almost automatically, almost an innate response to to sort of life and and society. It's it's complex, isn't it? And and I think there is a pressure for us to to live within category, right? You, uh, it's almost like your your Instagram profile, or if you're in a dating app, right? Okay, where do I sit on gay marriage? Where do I sit on abortion? Where do I sit on A B C D? Right? And this is me. I I'm a A B C C A B C. You know, and and it's weird. It's weird how that's 
like the fluidity, the nuances being left behind in exchange for for category and and I don't, I'm, I know we'll both keep running on and but you mentioned you mentioned culture right and that that kind of gives me a, a, an opportunity to segue back into your second documentary at least the second one that I was aware of which was on Netflix is it, is it still on Netflix I don't know in the UK if it, it might yeah. be I, liberated it, the new sexual revolution liberated the new sexual revolution which I watched and cringed my way through yeah. as i as i it's saw my fellow, fellow countrymen at their very worst and 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 that's not said from a, a position of judgment as much as it sounds because i've been there i've done the lads holiday overseas and uh they go on holiday i mean this is just uh, this is just some of the characters in this in this documentary but it, it focuses quite a bit on these lads from the uk in in america on spring break woohoo spring break chasing women and with a very very singular approach to that experience right and uh yeah it's 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 i don't i think it's an uncomfortable watch because it's like oh i thought this good you know i mean you've, you've either seen it firsthand or i'm just imagining a, an older generation going yeah this is what i was worried about my daughter going to spring break this year or whatever like this is everything i dreaded took took place but yeah, how was how I mean how was that experience for you being surrounded by teenagers just acting crazy when you've got a camera and how how was that filming that? You know, we find ourselves in these environments because we're following a story. And there's a, a sense and a degree to which we can't really anticipate the outcome of of where is this gonna end. We're just signing up to go on the journey. And um and I want to tie this back to some of the conversation that we've been having today, you know, is um, I never shared my faith with these guys or anything. I, I went down to be a fly on the wall to follow them in their spring break adventure. They wanted to uh, listen to this particular song we drive around a 15 passenger van they wanted to go here and there and so we had our film crew we were driving them around they wanted to listen to this song over and over again um by swedish house mafia and um and it's like don't you worry child don't you worry don't you worry child heaven's got a plan for you mm. this like you, do you know that song this yeah, I do, yeah. house mafia? okay so it's a very popular dance song back when we were filming with them um well after the filming uh Shay, one of the main characters, has a sports injury, ends up going through a lot of personal transformation in his life. So he decided to become part of the screening tour. Now he's like the main kind of like antagonist of the film. And, um, and audiences at college campuses were shocked to see him there after the screening when, you know, they'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> like, and, and, uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was a, a lot of shame for him to put himself in that environment but, but he really wants to let people know like i i've become a different person shay to me like represents exactly what we want to see happen in our world if we watch something like liberate and we just go this person is evil extinguish them from society yeah. um we're not we're not helping anybody the idea is we want to see people change because we all are going to make mistakes. We all have to go through a process of maturity and evolution. Well, he comes on this tour and he becomes very inquisitive about me and my values and where I'm coming from. Well, we're, we're driving hours and hours in planes, staying in the same hotel room. So him and I got to spend a ton of time together. We're on this one trip and 
I was just trying to explain to him like some of what I explained to you, like my, my worldview. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I view our world as like, imagine like this, this vast property and there's this, this fence around this property and there's a hill and a, and a cabin on the top of this hill and a lake, you know, looking over a lake and there's this property and there's a sound that's going out of it. And there's a father who lives in this cabin and there's a sound that he's sending out to draw people into his love and compassion and affection if they would just receive it. But some people are repelled by that and some people are drawn to it and some people are five miles away and some people are just outside the house. God's inviting all and we are all in different places. And I said, but the people who are outside of that pop, that, that hill that aren't in a relationship, that don't can can develop an impoverished spirit that's filled with slander and bitterness and resentment and all of these things you know god invites us to be free of all that to come into a relationship with himself and 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 experience his love and our purpose for being and and all this so i'm i'm, I'm explaining all this to him and i suddenly remember that years prior this song was the song that they wanted to sing like that they wanted to play over and over. And the song is about a father talking to his son. And he says, um, in a house on a hill over a blue lake, we start playing the song. And then it says this, the chorus is, don't you worry, don't you worry, child, heaven's got a plan for you. And it just says that over and over. And I'm like, Shay, I'm like, we were down at spring break. You were lost. You were take advantage of these girls you were living out of this this really carnal existence that was damaging to you damaging to the people around you but even in the midst of that god was speaking to you and he's saying son you're lost right now but heaven has a plan for you in that moment in the car when all this connected he just starts bawling and he's just like bawling and bawling and bawling and bawling we get back to the hotel we go to sleep that night the next morning he wakes up wide-eyed and he's like bro i just had this dream and i'm like what's the dream and he's like you were talking to this father figure and you guys were conversing and and i was off to the side and i felt so much shame like i don't belong here and um and he said and i was terrified that this father figure would notice me and shame me and he said and suddenly the father figure looks up at me and he said and i was terrified in that moment and he points at me and he says son i love you he's like all that shame just broke right off of me and so when we started filming liberated at spring break i i had no idea where this story would end up we're filming with these people who are at a really you know, just, I, I would describe as like a, a, a very broken place in their lives. Um, not judging them, but just like acknowledging that, that a lot of like unhealthy practices, um, which we've all been at, but I had no idea where this would end up. But there's this passage where it says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that word workmanship means poem. It's, it's it, the original word is poema. So it's this idea that God is this great loving father who's a poet and wants to write our story if we will yield and surrender ourselves to him. 
And I, to me, Shay's testimony and story is such a powerful example of that because Shay had no idea. I had no idea that God was going to write this beautiful story in which Shay would eventually encounter his love, become free from shame, and is now giving his life to do good for our planet, for humanity, for the younger generation of men, and whose story is changing so many people's lives. So it's all the beautiful work of, of God's redemptive influence in our world. I can't take credit for any of it. I'm like, I'm just stumbling along the way, bumping into walls and trying to figure it out. And I keep having these incredible experiences and testimonies that I get to be a part of. I mean, so many more like this, where it's just like, I'm so dull and dumb and broken and trying to do my best. And like, God keeps showing up in these miraculous, miraculous, transformative and powerful ways. Right. I'm laughing because at the start of this podcast, I said to Benji, I said, like, listen, you know, this is not a Christian podcast, but feel free, you know, <laughs> feel free if you want to talk about your faith, that's fine. But, you know, just bear that in mind and, and we it's broken in, but that's, that's okay. That's, that's okay. It's funny. And I think it's probably worth mentioning as well. Like, I love that story. Like this, that story, it's a story of, redemption like that's that's what gives me hope seeing people's lives change that's what always lifts my spirit wherever i wherever i am on my own personal faith journey whatever whatever i find difficult about religion and whatever i love stories of people's changing their lives and being like but i think it's also worth annexing it with you know you don't get become a christian life sorted right oh now i'm a you know now i've got a faith i'm no longer uh, you know i'm everything's i'm perfect person now Right. And uh, I think, did I say this earlier? I don't know. But one of the things I hate most is hypocrisy. And uh, and and uh, time and time again, sadly, we, we, we see we see sometimes high profile Christian leaders. I'm thinking of Ravi Zacharias, who, who was an a, a apologist, apologist, probably the m most famous apologist in, in the world for meaning for those who are unfamiliar with the term that he would go around and he would he would argue the case in an academic and intellectual way about the legitimacy of of God and the Christian faith. And it was discovered posthumously, I think, that he had massage parlors, right? He was trafficking women, or at least exploiting women himself when uh, when he was going about his ministries. And it's that, I think it's that, uh, I don't know, that that discontinuity, that, that mm -hmm. ruffle that I, that I have a have a real problem with. Um, so I think it's just worth saying, like, you know, it's, I have seen lives remarkably changed, like you've just described with Shay. Um, and from drug addictions lost and lives of crime transformed. Like, and I only, and I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Benji, mate. I really am. I'm like, I, I do believe that is a, as a consequence of an interaction with the divine. Only that. No perfect therapist or drug can change someone's life so dramatically and so instantly. But it's also, I always feel, forgive me for, for adding anything of a negative tone to it, that it's not all over. Right. It's not uh, it's life sorted when I became a Christian. Ever since then, I've turned away from drugs, from sex, from this, 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 this. And I've lived this perfect life because it's when you get to that place, of course, you come crashing down from the ivory tower. It's like it's a day on day thing. Right. Well, that's my belief. You don't disagree. Okay. And, and no, I, I actually had a chance to interview Ravi Zacharias one, once. And I asked him this very question about the issue of hypocrisy, you know, and he had a very eloquent answer for me. And, um, and yet was somebody who had become completely detached from his own values, from his own 
his own identity and um and he is another person who is contributing to the story of humanity over and over and over testifying that we are a flawed and, and broken species but there's there's a there's a beauty in that you know there's not a beauty in in what he did but there's a beauty in the imperfection of humanity and god's choice of us in that to choose a flawed but beautiful humanity for a purpose and um so you know i i didn't really intend to get all deep into this either if anyone has become interested has become perked in this converse uh as a result of this conversation i really recommend a book called um uh it's a henry nowen book called life of the beloved because it deals in a very fundamental way with the issue of spirituality and the issue of identity if we are a part like you know there's there's a couple arguments right one is there's a loving benevolent creature who created this world he had a design in mind and that comes with certain implications and the other one is that something came from nothing you know and then from the goo to the zoo to me and you like it was all kind of just over the billions of years of fortuitous concurrences all just kind of like manifested into this beautiful reality so from a cosmological perspective i gravitate towards the idea of a loving benevolent intelligent um being creating us bringing us into existence if that's the case that has so many more implications for my life and um and so what the life of the beloved gets into is this idea of being um chosen blessed broken and given it takes the the sacraments as a metaphor for life and so the very first thing that talks about being chosen so our identity inherently being those who have been chosen so i am the beloved you are the beloved you you were chosen before the foundation of the world to come into existence immediately the dignity that comes with that is transformative is that the dignity that comes with that has such a washing effect um because so many of my life experiences say otherwise you know my dad left our family when i was 13 years old we've all experienced rejections betrayals relational um conflict and and so much of our life experiences has hurt us has traumatized us and um there's something powerful about moving all that aside and saying loving intelligent benevolent being chose me as his beloved so this book unpacks in i would say non-spiritual language um a very practical way to understand the world view that i'm describing that i think is so beautiful and has helped inspire my way of being in the world um of of wanting to be in the world of a way that is characterized through love and compassion <laughs> this is going to sound extremely clunky now as i try and reintroduce this this documentary of 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 liberated before we even start talking about porn which i can't wait to discuss with you but it's i don't know we cuz we, we didn't give any we just went off on one there and we hadn't really given any context to to what liberated was about right so it's following this spring cult uh, spring break sort of these different characters coming over and and, and partying and and that transactional nature of sex and the 
objectification of the female form and the sort of predatory nature. And I have heard you from doing my, my research and speak very articulately on, on that. And that can tie us into the, the latest project, right, about the influence of pornography. And it's, it, 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 I mean, it is, I mean, I remember as a kid, uh, when I was first introduced to pornography, I don't know, it was pretty young, but it was more at 35. The internet wasn't around when I was a kid. And uh, so I think it was a magazine. You know, I think it was, I was playing football and some guy came along and brought a dirty mag and said, and it was like mind blown, irreversible and moment in time. And then of course it becomes more and more accessible. You become more and more um, desensitized, I think, to, 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 to pornography. And, and then you go on a, on a journey. And I think even later stages of my life through, through my work and uh, I, it's easy to say, well, they must be, you know, this must be consensual, right? You know, someone's getting paid, right? This is, you start making excuses why, why you would allow yourself to view it in some way, not, not even to cut out the religious aspect or, or anything like that, but in terms of the safety of the person behind them. But of course, the more I've learned of, of maybe we skip into porn, but the porn, the porn industry and quite like sex work is actually the, the, the cover story is one that suggests potentially empowerment or choice or you know, there's an allure there. There's a, there's, a, there's a superficial narrative that suggests it's all fine what's going on here. And of course, yeah. in many cases, arguably in most cases, what, what's actually taking place underneath that, if you, if you dare to look, is, is actually much more sad, much more savage, much more evil. And what's interesting from a, since faith has, has been such a part of our chat, is there are more people who aren't coming at it from a faith-based point of view. I'm thinking of a guy I listen to quite a bit. I don't know if you heard of Russell Brand. And he's someone who's a famous British actor, comedian, and ex-drug addicts, whatever, but he's a spiritual guy, but talks about actually the, the toxic nature of pornography and how, and how damaging it is. And once that would be attributed to the likes of us, right? Saying, oh, it's, it's the holier-than-thou clan trying to make us all feel bad. But there are right. more and more people coming from a quote-unquote secular perspective and saying, no, this is, we need to start thinking about like the, the toxic, the dark, the damaging nature of porn, how that influences behavior, how that normalizes aggressive rape culture and all of these negative consequences. And of course, as technology advances, children in, their, in these incredibly formative stages of their development are being exposed to this triple X pornography at boys and girls saying, well, this as a girl, how you must behave. And as a boy, this is how you behave at such, such an early age. So I'm excited to see what, what this documentary is going to, going to include, but it's, God, it's an issue, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an issue because globalization, because our world has been hardwired with visual devices now that we're all growing up in because of a lack of protections online because of the potent nature of just any visual experience combined with the sexual. So we live in a, in a, in a world now in which pornography is the wallpaper of our lives. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when young children are going to be exposed to it and then what that will do to them in terms of prematurely awakening their sexuality. So it's, we live in what I would describe as a corporately sexually traumatized planet. The images that kids are seeing online today are not a page out of a magazine. They are endless videos of the most graphic, hardcore body, body, 
body punishing, violent, abusive, degrading sex acts imaginable that I, I, I don't even feel comfortable repeating. Um, and <laughs> if I did, you would have viewers being like, man, can you guys you know, scale back the graphic name? But we're being exposed to those things. But we don't want to talk about it, but we're being exposed to them. So it's not only are we corporately sexually traumatized, but there's also an element of shame um, that, that comes with that as well. And, and I think that is hijacking the, the purpose and the calling and the destiny of a generation. Um, and it's, yeah, so we absolutely have our work cut out for us. On a positive note, I believe we are beginning to see the most substantive traction um, in terms of addressing this, this issue that we've ever seen. And um, the internet is still relatively new, you know, and, uh, and there's just a lot of work that needs to be done to, to, to help make it a safer environment for our kids to grow up in, for us to be online with. Um, but a year and a half ago, we started a, a movement called the Trafficking Hub Movement and to address the, the online distribution of pornography and specifically um, the user-based model, uh, upload model of how videos arrive on sites like Pornhub and other tube sites, um, X videos being another big one, YouPorn. Um, and what we found is that there were no age or consent verification um, uh, in place to, to qualify who was in these videos and whether they agreed to this or how old they were. And we found that that these large tube sites were a cesspool of all kinds of videos of abuse and rape and trafficking and underage. And so we started a campaign that has really helped turn the tide on that. And, and we're continuing with that campaign and we hope to bring about a permanent change to the way that pornography can be distributed online. We're about to kick off a new campaign, as I mentioned, called um, protect kids, not porn. And central to that will be this documentary that we're just completing called Raised on Porn. Um, and so we're really excited about what is coming here in the next um, few months with regards to rolling out a new campaign to, again, further address the issue of the way that, that pornography is distributed in our world and, and, um, and the impact that that's having. So, yeah, I just, regardless again of, of faith background, I just think that our children are the key to our future. And every decision that we make is voting for the kind of world that we wanna leave them and the kind of world that we want them to inherit. And so I'm either, I look at it very simply, like Louis, Louis uh, I can't pronounce his last name. Um, he's a National Geographic photographer, he said, you're either an activist or you're an inactivist. And, and I, I sort of look at it that way, you know, you're either, you're either a part of the problem or a part of the solution, you know? And, um, and I, I, want, I want to use my life choices to vote for a world that I would be proud to leave my kids, a world full of love and compassion, a world that protects children, protects the vulnerability, of those who are marginalized and, and in vulnerable situations, a world that, that protects the dignity of sexuality, the world, a world that, um, that prioritizes the safety of children above the pleasure of men. And so that's why we're doing this. That's why these campaigns are important to us. And uh, just to say, 
there's lots of ways for people out there to be involved. Uh, I really encourage people just to start by following Exodus Cry on Instagram. And that's a great starting point. But, but what we do necessitates the involvement of a larger demographic of people um, because we're creating all kinds of content that you know we want people to help get out there petitions that we need people to sign there's all kinds of um, calls to action and um, again whether people are faith-based or not we can all agree that we want to make our world safer for children we can all agree that you know we want to address sex trafficking so let's come together and get after it 100 you're doing a cracking job i mean i've been following it for a while now and uh and seeing it this your your instagram following swell and that i love the interviews that were have been shared with the the owners that right the owners of what's it pornhub mind oh, geek yeah. being questioned what's it by the canadian uh, authorities and 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 just sweating you know just really held to account and i think this is great this is great and 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 there's, I mean, we're looking at significant impact. If if uh, I mean, where are we on on that? It seems like would there be a, 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 a criminal consequence or or, or a, some penal consequence? I mean, about the, the hundreds and thousands of cases of rape that's taking place on this platform of of, of child abuse, of child pornography, of all of these evils of of people that are coming forward and saying, I, I I was a trafficking victim. Can you please take this video down? And they're being ignored. And then and the search terms that are being used then. I'm, what's happening? Tell me these, someone's going to be held to account, Benji. I think our collective action as a movement has begun to, to, to turn the wheels of providence, so to speak, in our favor, where the inevitability of them going bankrupt, being held criminally accountable seems inevitable. And um, so it started with the, you know, an op-ed that my colleague, Lila Micklewait wrote for the Washington Examiner, and then we started a petition, and then we did a short animated video, and then we had an art contest, and then the whole world started to become aware, and then our, journalists started to write articles, and the pressure began to mount, and then billionaires and key tech people started to speak out, and then MasterCard and, and Visa and Discovery dropped um, Pornhub, and and uh, PayPal dropped Pornhub, and, um, and all these things have just been snowballing 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 and 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 so now there's a series of lawsuits that are going forth and criminal investigations that are beginning to get undertaken and so um like it was with harvey weinstein you know it was like there was one kind of like pulling back of like uh like oh that's this is who this person is and then it just scorched earth you know and at one time it looked like, man, he might lose his place in the academy. Seemed like the big like potential yeah. outcome. Yeah, that's to, the worst consequence. This guy yeah. might spend his life in jail. Like he's yeah. not even making a movie again. Like he's gonna like forget that. So so I, I feel like that's that's where we're at is you know, we are invoking uh providence to come to bear to hold these people to account. And to bring forth justice on behalf of the oppressed, and when the wheels of providence start moving like this, I don't, I don't think there's any way for them to escape. I think that that they will be held accountable, and that we will see this mega super predator empire mind geek that owns ninety percent of all online pornography, wow. um, brought down. 
Wow. And I love that because if you, the, the wealth and the power that is inherited as a consequence that they wield, right? And the influence is significant. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and there's this campaign group. So yeah, we'll take you on. I mean, talk about David and Goliath. I mean, I love, I love that. And I, I love that the, that, 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 that the, the likes of MasterCard and Visa and PayPal, I go, I want nothing to do with this. You know, I, we, I'm going to close soon, but there's a, there's a US, I mean, you would have heard of this. I know you would have heard of OnlyFans, but it's, it's a UK company still. It's got a significant investment from a US uh, uh, businessman from, who's made money in all sorts of ways. But there's, uh, there's, uh, we, we took, got to take ownership for this, right? This, this platform. And there's, there's an argument. So the way OnlyFans works, um, unlike Pornhub, which is quite obviously a pornography site, OnlyFans classes itself as a social media site, right? It's quite clever in that regard. But the vast majority of content is pornographic. And what it says, once again, it's that empowerment argument as well, whichever you want to address that. But it takes 20% stake on whatever you make and you have the power to sell market yourself as you wish release whatever content you watch now that whether that is doing a cookery show uh, and 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 darning socks that's fine or whether it's sharing sex camming or explicit or extreme content they're all welcome right and 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 i've got a number of issues with it but principally there has been media that have started to, 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 to discover and to expose the fact that children are on these platforms, whether they are doing so uh, as a consequence of pressure or exploitation from a third party, coercion, whatever, or whether they're exploiting themselves. As a child, they should be protected. Those images, once they're out there, they're out there. And what's interesting as well from, a, from, from this sort of, the point of view is the predators that, that seek out and find very young people crossing their fingers and hoping they're, they're kids, is if the, the, an individual sharing extreme content is found to be a child, mm -hmm. the way they have to deal with it is to refund everybody that's bought and paid for content from this user. So it's quids in if you're a sex offender and you manage to find a fan on OnlyFans because worst case scenario, you can get all your money back, right? And, and, and I mean, that's just one of a million reasons why I'm so uncomfortable with it. But this, this, this ground, it's like, let's, let's create a playground and you can go over there if you want to, you know, experience what it's like to make flatbread pizza with Michael J, Michael B. Jordan. And if you want to see extreme pornography, just go to this edge of the playground. But, you know, it's up to you. And, and, and that for me is like, it's not good enough. You know, the, 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 the technology is, has, has, has got, it, it's expanded. It's expanded is the wrong word, but it has grown at such a rate that legislation has not caught up with it. And by the time something goes through courts in whatever jurisdiction, whatever country, and there's lobbying groups and there's arguments on either way, it's outdated by the time it's enacted anyway. It's almost toothless when we get there. And, and, and so I think there's something there. And I have a real issue with, a list so, so i can understand why someone goes i'm broke it's covid and i can send a picture of my boobs on this and suddenly i'm going to start making money right I, I get that i i what i don't get and what i'm not comfortable with is is the exploitation of children on that platform willingly or, or not and can we say willingly when someone's a child and then on the same platform it's endorsed by the likes of you know cardi b michael j and michael b jordan all these huge celebrities are going yeah this is fine only for, it's in a beyonce song it's referenced you know hundreds of millions of dollars i think they turned over 1.9 billion last year 
you know, a, a platform that's allowing, and I don't know what they're studying, the total staff is 40, four zero total staff. So how many people are adequately referencing and checking the identities of these uh, people that are, that, that are exploiting themselves on this platform, mm -hmm. particularly children? So that's just another one, Bej. Once again, I'm just, I'm just, I'm venting at you, um, but it, but it's, it's, it's a British owned company that is uh, that is that is do is that is practicing this harm and it's masked in plain sight right it's featured in pop songs only if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna start on only fans and uh i don't know i just think we're better than that come on we're better than that yeah again it, i think it comes back down to a vision for our world a vision for society a vision for humanity only fans embodies a vision for humanity in which um, the sexuality of, of women is prostituted out to an entire generation. And I, it's not my vision, you know, I, <laughs> I think it's a sad indictment against our world and where we're at as a culture, um, that we have essentially become a prostitution culture. And, um, and I, for one, would hope to have more meaning in my relationships and, we build a, a healthier structure to raise a family in um, that could eventually uh, have, you know, create a, a positive impact on our world. Um, I don't see how prostituting the sexuality of a generation is going to help advance our, our world or our species. Um, I think it's another example of the dark side of capitalism in which everything is for sale including people, including sexuality. And um, I, it, those are the things that grieve me. Those are the things that, that I weep over when I think about our world. Those are the things that I think God weeps over. I don't think it was part of his plan and his design for humanity. And um, I just think he has so much more for us, you know? And, um, and we've, we've in many ways put the cart before the horse, you know? If you could just jump to sex without any of the social interaction that happens before that you're you're missing out on the experience of being fully alive in a relationship in, in which there's an exchange of energy and ideas and emotions and intellect and experiences and histories that set up the safety and for a meaningful sexual interaction and i, I think when you leave all that behind and you just make it popcorn um we're really missing out on something very special and uh so hence, you know, the work that we're doing, we're fighting an uphill battle. Um, we're fighting against a tide of, of uh, in our culture that is going in the opposite direction. And, uh, and we're just gonna keep being a voice in a wilderness and, and trying to, to do our best to make a difference. Good man. Close for me with something hopeful. I bookend every podcast with a question at the start about coffee and close it with what is your hope for the future? <laughs> My hope for the future, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that we're going to rescue this culture, this society overnight, but I do believe that we can reclaim a vision for love and compassion as the centerpiece of our humanity. We saw this last year um, how suddenly a generation can, can awaken to a justice cause and, um, and how a flashpoint moment can really help move the needle on 
a justice issue. So I have hope that um, that we can that, that we can see that trend continue in a positive direction. Mm. Um, I think that what we've seen with the trafficking hub campaign this past year sets me up for a hopeful expectation of what we will continue to see happen with regards to the way that um, pornography is able to be distributed and specifically with regards to the protection of children in our world. So yeah, our, our, if our, our team is, is very optimistic, uh, I'd say the most optimistic we've ever been about what the future holds for us. And, um, and that's, that's the inspiration that keeps us going every day is just that vision of like, we are at the threshold of making a massive change in our society and it's happening. So let's stay with it. Great place to finish. Benji, thank you so much for being a joy talking to you. I know we could have talked for a lot longer. We probably talked yeah. to longer than perhaps we should, but it's been an absolute joy. And uh, yeah, thank you so Absolutely. much for sharing. You're a great podcast host and it's been awesome to have this time with you. Thanks for just letting me share freely about all this stuff. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. We'll do it again. Yeah, good man. Cheers. Cheers, Benji. Thanks. Cheers. He's a good bloke, isn't he? Yeah, I really like him. He seems to me to present as an incredibly actualized individual. What do I mean by that? I mean that Benji clearly has a strong Christian faith, but he makes no attempt to hide that or compartmentalize it in order to have a wider appeal. He is comfortable in his identity as a Christian. His faith is him and he is his faith. And it's from that position that he does what he does. It's not a sidelined characteristic or add-on. It is complicit in all he produces. Whether or not that content is in any way evangelical, there is a coherence to him that I admire. I also recognize the power of filmmaking. It's such a scalable means of doing justice. A well-made movie or documentary can reach hundreds of thousands of people with a message and lead them into action. We've seen it time and again. How about you? How did you come to get interested in justice? Where did you first encounter the human trafficking narrative? I bet for a lot of you, it was in a movie. You heard Benji describe himself as an abolitionist. And abolitionists do. They move beyond their phones and they step into action. They also organize, they unite in order to gain greater influence for their cause. This is something that I'm inspired by. How do we lend our voice to campaigns calling for justice around the world? How do we step up and fill the gaps where there is no campaign? How do we build a community of abolitionists who don't want to look the other way, but to lean in to the suffering and do something about it. Benji has a new film coming out on September the 23rd called Raised on Porn. You can view it on their YouTube channel, which is called Magic Lantern Pictures. I'll also put a link into the show notes. The film will be accompanied by a new campaign called Protect Kids, Not Porn. So look out for that one too. 
I thought maybe we could host a screening or something. Maybe online or in person if we're allowed. What do you think? Let me know. Thanks for listening along today. I know it was a long one, but it was a goodie too, wasn't it? We've also put the video of that interview out on our YouTube channel, actually. It's probably a bit too late to mention that now, but if you fancy taking a look, search Blue Bear Coffee on YouTube and I'm sure you'll track it down. Make sure you add coffee, though. Blue Bear will just get you a load of cartoons about a bear in the big blue house. They're also thoroughly entertaining, but I fear you might get dragged down a YouTube rabbit hole, never to appear again. Blue Bear Coffee podcast should do the trick. Drop us a message. Let us know what you thought of today's conversation. And let me know if you have any subjects you'd like to hear on this podcast. You can do that by emailing me, Bryn at BlueBearCoffee.com. That's B-R-Y-N, not Brian, as I'm so frequently called. Or DMing us at BlueBearCoffeeCo on Instagram. I've put plenty of links in the show notes Links to the influential films, Benji mentioned, War Photographer and The Cove. I've also put a link to the book, Life of the Beloved. And of course, a link to Benji's movies and the Exodus Cry Instagram profile. This podcast was produced by Blue Bear Coffee Co. We're holding a fundraising cycle ride this September the 4th in Norfolk in the east of England. Come and join us for the day and help us raise money for our charity partners. Follow along on our social media to get more details or visit us at bluebearcoffee.com. Speak soon. Stay safe. Peace.